Greetings once again, dear CHP listeners. Laszlo Montgomery here with you once again, bringing you the 10th episode in a series where we're given the history of Taiwan a nice once-over. We've made it to the 1950s, but there's still quite a ways to go yet. I might have to spin this series off into a whole new podcast show. Last time we convened, we got as far as 1950 and the commencement of the Korean War. Joseph Stalin, he didn't live long enough to see all the damage he did to the United States and to USPRC relations. But with the Korean War and the whole sorry aftermath, he sure made a fine mess of things for the Yanks. We know, of course, that relations got all patched up, but during the 1950s and into the 1960s, the battle drums between the PRC, ROC, and USA would always be audible. Following the end of World War II, our frenemy, the Soviet Union, and their enthusiasm to make the world safe from capitalism and imperialism, backed the PRC to the hilt. They didn't use the term no-limits partnership, but... In these heady early days of the Sino-Soviet alliance, they had a lot of things going on. And some of them kept Americans up at night. And among the many Cold War battles that happened throughout the 1950s, a few of them were fought right in the Taiwan Strait. The history of the 1950s in Taiwan is dominated by a few narratives. One was KMT repression, euphemized as the White Terror. We'll start looking at that next time. Also looming large was U.S.-Taiwan relations and all the repercussions that came with that. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, there was the whole dire specter of the Cold War. And that's going to be the focus of this episode. But before I get into that, let me mention there was plenty else also happening on Taiwan, culturally, politically, and economically during the 1950s. I mentioned land reform last episode. Now, this continued to bring economic benefits to rural farmers, which in turn led to quite a boost in agricultural yields. From the time land reform was introduced under Chun Chung, rice output had risen 46% in only four years. Major landowners saw the value of their land holdings decrease, which led many to seek other forms of investment turning farmland over to industrial and manufacturing enterprises. The government continued to release more land to farmers all the way into the 1970s. Between 1951 and 1953, private ownership of the land went from 57 to 90% of farmers enjoying the benefits and the pride of land ownership. Sun Yat-sen would have approved of all of this as equalization of land rights was something he had first called for going back to 1905 and the founding of the Tongmeng Hui. So land reform on Taiwan was a smashing success, and Chiang Kai-shek didn't even have to murder a million landlords to make it all happen. The new Taiwan dollar remained nice and stable. Economic growth was looking great. Inflation was kept in check. Per capita income was rising steadily. But people were, overwhelmingly, still not that well off and lived a rather austere lifestyle. Christianity in Taiwan eh, never caught on like it did in South Korea. Korea today is about 20% Protestant, 11% Catholic. On Taiwan, eh, only about 4% of the people today embrace Christianity, evenly spread out between 
Protestantism and Catholicism. If you'll permit me to digress for a moment, this won't take long. Well, back in 1980, when I spent a summer studying in Taiwan, the first group of foreigners I fell in with were all Mormons serving their mission in Taiwan. I remember them fondly. Today, there's about 62,000 members of the LDS Church there. Mormon missionaries first came to Taiwan in June 1956. During the mid-1950s and into the 1960s, it was open season for Christianity in Taiwan, and both Protestants and Catholics enjoyed a nice, great leap forward during this time. But it wasn't always like this. I hardly even mention this up to now, but prior to the 1950s, Christianity had a rocky roller coaster ride in Taiwan. Dutch missionaries brought Jesus to Taiwan in the 17th century. And they brought it not only to the southwest coast, but into the mountains as well, right to the front door of many indigenous tribes. Then came Chung Chung Gong, who kicked the Dutch out, missionaries included, and Christianity suffered its first setback on Taiwan. For two centuries, it was a dark time on Taiwan as far as spreading the gospel and winning souls to Jesus was concerned. 1860s was the decade Christianity returned to Taiwan. Catholicism came via the Spanish-Dominicans based in the Philippines, and Presbyterianism came to Taiwan via British and Canadian missionaries. The Canadians did their work mostly in the north of Taiwan, and the British Presbyterians, mostly Scotsmen, focused their efforts in the south. In this post-treaty port era, there were several noted Christians who came to Taiwan in the wake of the 1858 Treaty of Tianjin. The most renowned was George Leslie Mackay, born in Canada. Mackay's people were all Scots, and he arrived in Taiwan December 29, 1871. And he went on to have a profound impact on Christianity in Taiwan and was responsible for instituting several social and educational programs. McKay, James Laidlow Maxwell, and William Campbell collectively did plenty of good during the years they spent on Taiwan during that time in the late Qing. Many Taiwan missionaries had gotten a head start in Fujian. It was very efficient and effective to simply copy and paste on Taiwan what they had already created in Fujian. Missionaries as well-meaning as they all were, often unintentionally got all tangled up in the general xenophobia of the times. The early years proselytizing on Taiwan often met with gruesome endings. But after a period of good deeds and sincere efforts, Christians on Taiwan faced less and less antagonism. If you recall a few episodes ago, the Japanese, during their 50 years in charge promoted freedom of religion as long as you practice Shintoism. They made an exception for the Presbyterians and allowed them to continue their work on Taiwan. And Presbyterian missionaries had the island to themselves for six decades before Japan, in 1925, started loosening up restrictions, allowing other denominations in the front door. But come 1940, the Japanese will start cracking down on Christianity again, In the last five years of their rule on Taiwan, as we saw in previous episodes, was quite a stressful time. After 1949, Christian missionaries were showed the door in China, and about 4,000 Protestant and 6,500 Catholic missionaries 
had to find someplace else to carry on their work. Now, not all of them went to Taiwan, but a fair number did. Therefore, in this post-World War II, post-Civil War era, missionaries started coming in much greater numbers, spreading the good news and playing their part in promoting education, health, and in diminishing the suffering of their flocks and society at large. During the 1950s, Buddhism too returned in force, though it would be a while before the economy returned to sufficient heights where large-scale temple building resumed. So the 1950s, that was a good time for Christianity amidst everything else that I'm about to get into. Into the later 1950s and 60s, more and more denominations came to Taiwan to carry out missionary work. Taiwanese were too poor to own television sets, so theaters and cinemas remained cheap, popular entertainment. Most movies were made in Taiwanese. If you recall, I mentioned how Count Sakuma Samata, during his time as governor from 1906 to 1915, introduced baseball to Taiwan. People played baseball in the 1950s, but as I think I mentioned, this sport didn't really take off until the 1960s. The 1950s saw a decade of growth for the city of Taipei. This is where the city really began to take off. The famous Grand Hotel was opened in May 1952. Jiang needed a showpiece hotel to host all the state dinners and visits from foreign dignitaries. The main building that many of us know and love today, well, that one didn't open till October 1973. I stayed there a few times back in the 1980s. It was the tallest building in Taiwan up till 1981. President Eisenhower stayed at the Grand Hotel during his visit in June 1960. So did Nixon in 1965, Reagan, Clinton, Nelson Mandela, Margaret Thatcher, the Shah of Iran, King Hussein of Jordan, Lee Guan Yu, and King Pumipon and Queen Siriki. They all stayed at that renowned Taiwan landmark. The Central Cross Island Highway, a.k.a. Provincial Highway 8, began construction on July 7, 1956. Ringo, celebrating his 16th birthday on that day, still working as a machinist in Liverpool. This spectacular highway opened in May 1960 and served as a stepping stone in the gradual opening up of the mountains. Local Taiwan residents also know this winding road is often closed to traffic due to bad weather and earthquakes that lead to all kinds of dangers in traveling along that highway. There was this popular ditty that Jiang had uttered that went, Yi nian jun bei, er nian fang gong, san nian sao dang, wu nian cheng gong. Preparation during the first year, counterattack in the second year, mop up in the third year, and it'll be mission accomplished in the fifth year. No two ways about it, Jiang Kai-shek was intent on going back and retaking the mainland. But this was going to require a little help from his friends. The Americans knew what he was calling for, but they had told Jiang repeatedly they weren't going to back him on any of his schemes that had anything to do with reigniting the Civil War and dragging them into it to go try and expel the communists. But we saw how, once the Korean War started, Taiwan turned into an unsinkable aircraft carrier and U.S. policy took an about-face. And Chiang Kai-shek went from being cash my check to the Generalissimo and His Excellency, President Chiang. The People's Republic of China made a big deal about this whole 
Taiwan-U.S. alliance and called it an affront to Chinese sovereignty and by its very nature to China's national security as well. They saw it for what it was, blatant American attempts at communist containment. So if that sounds familiar to anyone, now you can see how far back all this went. On December 19, 1949, I didn't mention this, after the Americans moved their embassy from the mainland to Taipei, it led to incidents where American consular officials were roughed up pretty bad. And this immediate and unpleasant confrontation pretty much set the tone for the next couple decades. Then came the Korean War, and that took the already strained relationship from bad to worse and froze this toxic state of affairs like a bug in amber until cooler heads prevailed in 1972. Even though Truman had vehemently declared in January 1950 that America wasn't getting in the middle of any Chinese civil wars, by October of that year, after PLA troops crossed the Yalu River into North Korea, Taiwan became a new forward base in the American fight against the spread of communism. June 28, 1950, Zhou Enlai didn't mince words about American actions in the Taiwan Strait and stated that Taiwan was part of China and would remain that way forever. As the Korean War unfolded and ground into a stalemate, lots of things were happening on Taiwan with respect to American economic and military aid. August 16, 1950, the executive yuan in Taipei approved an emergency measure called the Guanbi, or Closed Port Policy. This actually went back to June 18, 1949. This Guanbi policy involved naval blockades that prevented any vessels from sailing to any PRC port between the Liao and Min rivers, which, if you check a map of China, covers the coastline from the Bohai Sea and Liaoning, all the way to where the Min River empties into the Taiwan Strait, where Admiral Zheng He used to embark on his voyages to the Western Seas. In February 1950, Jiang extended this blockade to Guangdong, essentially blockading the entire eastern coast of China. Jiang was shutting it down to foreign trade, prohibiting any foreign vessels from calling on China ports, And he not only enforced this blockade along the China coast, he also, illegally, I might add, enforced this policy on the high seas. Almost 70 foreign vessels ended up getting caught in this web trying to run this naval blockade of the China coast. The ROC kept this up until 1979, but during the early 1950s, the ROC Navy was particularly aggressive about intercepting these vessels trying to do some honest business with the PRC. I'll get into this shortly, but this Guanbi policy spawned several incidents that required some high-power diplomacy. I touched on this earlier when discussing the matter of how Taiwan ended up getting handed to the government of the Republic of China as per the wishes of Franklin Roosevelt at the Cairo and Potsdam conferences. Now, amidst all this war and Cold War emotions ratcheted up to unseen levels, came the Treaty of San Francisco. This treaty, signed in September 1951, was the peace treaty that formally ended hostilities with Japan and sorted the whole aftermath of World War II in the Pacific out. Both the PRC and ROC were not invited to participate since both sides claimed to represent China. And because not everyone agreed on who spoke for China, due to this basic divergence in opinions, 
everyone agreed to just leave this whole matter of Taiwan out and just kick that can down the road until conditions were more conducive to a peaceful settlement. One of the characteristics of American politics is the change in foreign policy that occurs when there's a change in the political party ruling the roost. Well, one of those things happened in 1952 when Harry Truman announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. The great American hero, General Dwight David Eisenhower, was elected the 34th president and political power shifted from the Democrat side to the Republican side. And this had quite an impact on U.S.-Taiwan relations, which in turn had a pretty big impact on PRC relations. In short, the Republicans were much better friends of Chiang Kai-shek, the KMT, and Taiwan. Since 1949, the Truman administration, never a fan of the Generalissimo, had been holding Chiang Kai-shek back, preventing him from carrying out these guerrilla attacks on the mainland and riling the PLA up. And during the Korean War, Chiang had often asked MacArthur to put him in the game, but offers of sending ROC troops to Korea were always rebuffed. And now with hostilities tamped down in Korea, February 1953, Chiang Kai-shek was unleashed to quote the term used back then, the new Republican-led government was no longer going to stop Chiang Kai-shek from ordering his military to engage in all kinds of mischief with his PLA rivals. And the mighty American 7th Fleet stepped up their patrolling of those waters of the Taiwan Strait. And the People's Liberation Army of 1953 wasn't the military machine that it is now in 2023, so there was nothing Mao could do except stew in his anger. May 1951, the MAAG was established to manage all the military aid that was now flowing like a river into Taiwan. The MAAG was the Military Assistance Advisory Group. These military advisors attached to the MAAG served all over the world. They were extremely active in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War years. Let me just mention a little bit of excitement that occurred on June 23, 1954, with the capture of a civilian Soviet tanker vessel called the Tuapse, named after the Black Sea port just north of Sochi. The Tuapse got caught up in Jiang's Guanbi closed port policy. The Tuapse was captured north of the Philippines on the high seas, and the vessel and crew of 49 were led back to Taiwan. The vessel was carrying a full load of kerosene destined for Shanghai. And once news spread about what happened, well, plenty of countries were shaking their fist at the ROC, you know, because of the whole freedom of navigation thing. But Jiang would not be swayed. That he broke international law and in capturing the Tuapse like he did was not going to change his mind. Once the Tuapse docked in Kaohsiung, the crew were split up into groups of about a dozen, and everyone was separated from everyone, according to the age-old interrogation technique, and they were subjected to all the usual Cold War brainwashing techniques that were designed to flip them and lead them to request political asylum, something that was always worth its weight in propaganda. This was part of the game played between the Cold War powers, they were always trying to score these kinds of victories by getting their prized defectors or captives to go on the radio and trash talk their country of origin. If you could get a Soviet citizen to go on the radio 
and declare their love for, you know, truth, justice, and the American way. <laughs> Ma and Pa Cat will always love that kind of stuff. Nowadays, we have social media that allows for all manners of kooks and shills and experts to sound off about the horridness of their own nations or somebody else's. But back in the 1950s, lacking today's technologies, it was a much more laborious process. The crew of the Tuapse were treated horrifically, given the same treatment as prisoners of war, and every attempt was made to get them to defect. It took about a year before the Soviets were able to enlist the French to negotiate a release of 29 of the crew members, including the captain. They didn't fare too well when they got back to Russia. The remaining 20 captured crew members, who refused to sign anything or cooperate, got further entangled in this chapter of Cold War history. Nine were taken to the U.S., and a couple of prisoners yielded to the Americans and went on the radio to trash the Soviet Union and their whole system of government. Meanwhile, at the United Nations, where the ROC still held the seat that represented China, fiery debates were held about this incident between them and the Soviets. Chiang Kai-shek was put through the ringer by other nations who strongly objected to his actions. Even the Americans told him to ease up on this whole matter. The tanker Tuapse was absorbed into the ROC Navy and was renamed the Kwai Ji, and you could still see it permanently moored in Kaohsiung Harbor. Believe it or not, the last of the prisoners captured in this 1954 incident didn't get repatriated until 1988. So between Chiang's closed port policy and all the trouble that caused for foreign vessels operating anywhere in the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait, plus this whole Tuapse incident and this sudden growth in a U.S. military presence, it was all one big recipe for a crisis. And indeed, with all these ingredients, it was only a matter of time until something explosive happened. At that time, on the island of Qinmen, just a few kilometers from the Chinese mainland, the nationalists had 58,000 troops. On Mazu Island, also right off the China coast, there were another 15,000 ROC troops stationed there. And this was a substantial portion of Jiang's entire army. For those familiar with my home turf of Los Angeles... Those two islands were much closer to the Chinese mainland than Santa Catalina Island is off the coast of Long Beach. It's visible from both directions, no matter whether you're standing on one of those two islands or on the Fujian coast. Premier Zhou Enlai, on August 11, 1954, declared that the time had come to liberate Taiwan. And with that, the PLA started shelling the two islands of Qinmen and Matsu. This, predictably, put everyone on high alert. Two American MAAG advisors serving on Jinmen were killed in this massive shelling by the PLA. The Korean War had only been over since July 1953, and only a year later came this latest conflict, which became known as the First Taiwan Strait Crisis, and it lasted for seven months and four weeks, ending on May Day, May 1st, 1955. As a direct result of the shelling of Jinmen and Matsu, the U.S. and ROC entered into the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty. It was signed on December 4, 1954, and ratified the following March. There were ten articles to the Mutual Defense Treaty, and the main ones were Articles 5 and 7. 
Article 5 stated, quote, Each party recognizes that an armed attack in the West Pacific area directed against the territories of either of the parties would be dangerous to its own peace and safety and declares that it would act to meet the common danger in accordance with its constitutional processes. Any such armed attack and all measures taken as a result thereof shall be immediately reported to the Security Council of the United Nations. Such measures shall be terminated when the Security Council has taken the measures necessary to restore and maintain international peace and security. End quote. Article 7 went, quote, The government of the Republic of China grants and the government of the United States of America accepts the right to dispose such United States land, air, and sea forces in and about Taiwan and the Pescadores, as may be required for their defense, as determined by mutual agreement. End quote. So, as a result of this treaty, besides the MAAG presence on Taiwan, there was also the United States Taiwan Defense Command, or USTDC, that was active there during the period of this Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty from December 1954 to April 1979. The USTDC were under the U.S. Pacific Command and were composed of military personnel from all branches of the service. They were tasked with essentially defending Taiwan. A lot of sophisticated and powerful military hardware was deployed on Taiwan, and this included both missiles and fighter aircraft. With the establishment of the MAAG and the USTDC, it marked the beginning of an oversized American military presence on Taiwan. In addition to Jinmen and Matsu, there was also an island chain to the north of there, right off the coast of Taichou, Zhejiang province, called the Dachuns. Jiang and the nationalists up to now have been able to hold on to this small group of islands and rocks. And just to the north of the Dachuns were another couple tiny islands called North and South Yijiangshan. These two islands were less than 10 miles off the coast of Taichou. So these places as well were experiencing a barrage of PLA artillery shells raining down on them. The Dachuns started getting hit in November of 1954 and Yijiangshan in January 1955. The Battle of the Yijiangshan Islands lasted from January 18 to 20, 1955. Over the course of three very intense days of fighting, PLA troops had stormed ashore and the ROC forces were ultimately overpowered and kicked off the islands, which were seized back by the PLA. They used enough overwhelming force to wipe out all the ROC positions on Yijiangshan. In the time these nationalist soldiers had been based on Yijiangshan, they had dug all these tunnels and bunkers where they had been forced to retreat to. And once they were cornered in these underground structures, they met a fiery end with flamethrowers and explosives. 567 ROC soldiers were killed and almost as many captured. The cost in lives for the PLA was 200 killed and 400 wounded. The ROC had used this base off the coast of Zhejiang to harass and carry out a number of attacks that, well, they weren't going to bring down the PRC, but eh, who needed that kind of thing? Well, ever since their capture by the PLA, those islands have been part of the Jiaojiang district of the city of Taizhou, Zhejiang province. 
must have felt nice for Mao to finally be able to blow off a little steam as far as expressing his feelings about seeing his nemesis of almost three decades stationing troops so close to his shore. So the first Taiwan Strait crisis started with the shelling of Jinmen and Mazu, followed by the capture of Yijiangshan. And then once they captured Yijiangshan, north and south, they looked a little further north to these many tiny islands that made up the Dachun archipelago. It didn't take long before the ROC troops on the Dachuns knew there was no way they were going to be able to hold on to these islands. When the PLA bombed the reservoir that supplied fresh water, that was the signal to abandon the place. The ROC had managed to hang on to the Dachuns for more than five years. It was now time to go. In order to rescue all 29,000 or so ROC forces and civilians from the Dachun Islands, the U.S. Navy had to be called in. U.S. Congress authorized the 7th Fleet to perform Operation Pullback, also known as Operation King Kong, the Jingangji Hua, to evacuate everyone to Taiwan. Now, on February 5th, 1955, 132 vessels and 400 aircraft took part in this mission to rescue and transport all the troops and heavy equipment off the islands. And from there, they sailed south to Taiwan. Jiang Jingguo was personally involved in this mission and was the last one to evacuate, taking the ROC flag with him on the way out. And with that, the PLA was able to eliminate this threat of constant guerrilla attacks off the Zhejiang coast. The same could not be said for the islands of Jinmen and Mazu off the Fujian coast. They continued to be occupied by the ROC. To give you an idea what frame of mind the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff was in, they had suggested to Eisenhower to use atomic bombs against China if push came to shove. Ivy Mike, the name given to the first H-bomb blown up by the United States, had been tested on November 1, 1952 on Enuitak Atoll in the South Pacific. So the destructive force of nuclear weapons had come a long way since August 1945. But despite this very heated debate, Eisenhower gave the thumbs down to that whole idea. Good thing, too. Had nukes been used during the first Taiwan Strait crisis? It might be a different world than what we're living in right now. This Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty had further ratcheted up tensions in the Taiwan Strait as did the January 29, 1955 Formosa Resolution Act. Here is where the U.S. Congress okayed the use of U.S. troops to defend Taiwan in the event of a PLA invasion. In March of 1955, U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles went on the record again to threaten the use of nuclear weapons, but NATO foreign ministers talked him off that ledge. As I said, on May 1st, 1955, the PRC declared mission accomplished and pulled back, ceasing their artillery barrages on Jinmen and Matsu. And this came as a result of what had happened a month before in April 1955 at the historic Bandong Conference. It was at Bandong that Zhou Enlai had stated, quote, The Chinese people do not want to have a war with the United States. The Chinese government is willing to sit down to discuss the question of relaxing tension in the Far East, and especially the question of relaxing tension in the Taiwan area, end quote. So this, as well as other faint signals coming out of Beijing, 
put a lid on the first Taiwan Strait crisis and led to two years of dialogue between the PRC and the U.S. And this was all detailed in that award-winning CHP U.S.-China relations 1969-1972 to series from a few years ago. Give that a listen if you haven't already. So... Into 1955, the U.S. and the nationalists on Taiwan appeared to be on the same page as far as the commitments made to each other. But there was a serious case of Tong Chuang Yi Meng going on between the U.S. side and Jiang Kai-shek. Same bed, different dreams. How Jiang viewed the Mutual Defense Treaty and how the U.S. side did had some variations. First off, The U.S. government and the military were very concerned about Jiang using this mutual defense treaty as a way to oblige the United States to back him in any attack on the mainland. So this kept people in Washington up at nights. There was a lot of debate and plenty of rancor on both sides about this whole matter of defending Jinmen and Mazu. Defend, leave them alone to Jiang and the ROC side. These were sacred islands that needed to be defended at all costs. To many on the U.S. side, they were nothing but one big provocation, and they didn't want to get sucked into any conflict involving either of these islands. So Jin Men and Matsu had been purposely left out of the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty. It only covered the territories of Taiwan and Penghu. And later on in Part 11, when we get to the second Taiwan Strait Crisis, we'll see what this meant as far as U.S. defense of Taiwan. Well, after the Bandung Conference and the conclusion of the first Taiwan Strait crisis, the shelling and bombing may have ceased, but the tension was still there. Chairman Mao and the CCP was still vociferously calling to liberate Taiwan. Jiang and the nationalists weren't giving up their objectives to Hui Fu Dalu, to recover the mainland. And Uncle Sam was caught in the middle, demanding restraint and avoiding conflict. So this situation caused quite a big rift in the U.S. government because no one was looking to go to war. Since 1954, U.S. and PRC diplomats were meeting behind the scenes in Geneva to discuss this matter, but no one was interested to listen to American suggestions that this all be settled by peaceful means. Jiang hated these talks his American allies were having with PRC diplomats in Europe. He looked at this and saw nothing more than an opportunity for rapprochement between the PRC and the U.S., which would leave him the odd man out and consequently the loss of their seat on the Security Council of the United Nations, not to mention the loss of diplomatic recognition from just about every country in the world. One of the upshots of the talks secretly going on in Geneva was a verbal agreement where the U.S. and PRC renounced the use of force in this matter of Taiwan. Jiang was livid when he heard this. So were all of his most loyal supporters, as well as the China hawks and the U.S. government, and, of course, the China lobby. And into 1956, Jiang was still making a heck of a lot of noise about retaking the mainland and giving arguments about why he could succeed. And this led President Eisenhower to remark to Jiang in April of 1956 that he didn't believe, quote, that it would be in the best interests of our two countries to espouse the use of force to solve the difficult problem of communist control of the Chinese mainland, 
we do not consider that to involve military force is an appropriate means of freeing communist-dominated peoples, and we are opposed to initiating action which might expose the world to a conflagration which could spread beyond control. End quote. And not just Jiang, but Madam Jiang as well, Song Mei Ling. She too had said, quote, The purpose of aiding Taiwan is not just to defend Taiwan. End quote. So, in 1956, you could see there was a chasm that existed between Chiang Kai-shek and the U.S. government about this whole, you know, taking back the mainland thing. Between the talks quietly going on in Geneva, not to mention the aftershocks of Khrushchev's secret speech in February 1956, all of these events really made things complicated in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. In 1957, an unfortunate event went down in Taipei that came to be known as the May 24th Incident. Despite all the military and economic aid that the U.S. was sending in Taiwan's direction, all was not rosy and sweet-smelling between the Taiwanese people and the Americans. I'm sure there were plenty of actions carried out by a few of the 10,000 CIA, military, and other government folks, plus their families and dependents, that got under the skin of many a resident on Taiwan, not least of which was the extraterritoriality they enjoyed. It wasn't called that, but for any of these crimes committed by these American servicemen or civilians in Taiwan, well, they didn't have to answer to the authorities there. They answered to the military or the diplomatic authorities. Details are kind of sketchy, but one night in a Yangminshan neighborhood, a U.S. Air Force sergeant caught a Taiwanese man named Liu Ziran on his property, allegedly spying through the window while the sergeant's wife was bathing. This is probably not true, but anyway, he was found on the guy's property. This Air Force sergeant caught this guy in these suspicious circumstances and shot him with a twenty-two, and then shot him a second time as he tried to get away, and Liu Ziran was killed. Details are murky, but suffice to say, it quickly escalated into a certified brouhaha, and a court-martial promptly found the sergeant not guilty. And they gathered him and his family up and whisked them out of Taiwan post-haste. And that should have been that, but it wasn't. On the morning of May 24th, Liu Ziran's widow led a protest in front of the U.S. Embassy, which attracted about 6,000 protesters. The crowd degraded into an angry mob. Jiang Qingguo, who ran the secret police and public security on Taiwan, sat on his hands and allowed the protesters to do their thing, teach the Americans a lesson, let them dangle for a bit. The protesters inflicted a great amount of damage to the embassy and ransacked other U.S. offices, the U.S. Information Service among them. The violence carried out was allowed to run its course, and Jiang kept it from spreading. No Americans were killed, but still. The U.S. let Jiang know how much they didn't appreciate this whole thing. Jiang Qingguo used this incident to send a message of displeasure to the U.S., while the ROC may have appreciated American support in defending them against any mainland attacks, a lot of people in government weren't so happy about their haughty behavior and for all the sordid incidents that seemed to hover around American troops, no matter based in Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, or Korea. Both sides didn't want to see this whole matter derail their relationship. It was diffused after... 
Chiang Kai-shek sent a sincere apology to Eisenhower and other diplomats for what had happened. And to sweeten the deal, he dipped into his considerable pot of U.S. aid money and compensated the Americans for their losses, which amounted to about eh, half a million dollars. So that was the May 24th incident of 1957. Now, I'd say, looking at my watch and all, that it's about time to slip the old bookmark in and call it a night. Next episode in part 11, we'll look at the second Taiwan Strait crisis. There was one down and three more to go, if you include the one from last August 2022 that followed Speaker Pelosi's quick in-and-out visit to Taiwan. As we all know, it would take until February 1972 to get the U.S. and PRC to agree to a new course in their relationship. But it was likely that this all got started back in 1956 when the whole idea of establishing relations with each other, anathema to so many on both sides, started to get a bit of oxygen. Later in that year, Zhou Enlai had even sent a secret message through an intermediary that assured Jiang that after reunification, the KMT could stay on and govern Taiwan and that they'd offer him some kind of position that would allow him to remain relevant. Well, needless to say, Premier Zhou got no response from the Generalissimo on that offer. All of these tensions continued on into 1958, and events beyond anyone's control kept stirring this pot. In the summer of that year, there was renewed talk in the PRC about liberating Taiwan. This was followed by the shooting down of two F-84s flown by ROC Air Force pilots patrolling around the Taiwan Strait. The PLA had also begun parking fighter jets on offshore islands, all clear signals that something was up. And then on August 7, 1958, ROC fighter jets engaged their PLA counterparts in airspace over Jinmen. This earned a rebuke from Washington, and a clear message was sent that said, well, in so many words, make sure you tell us first before you engage the PLA in air combat. So, I think that's enough action, tension, and thrills for one episode. I once again invite you to come back next time to see how things play out with the second Taiwan Strait crisis, and maybe the third one, too, if time permits. Now, I don't want to say anything, but Chiang Kai-shek had his loyal supporters, and I got mine, too. And everyone who follows me on Patreon or subscribes to CHP Premium, they've already heard Part 11, and perhaps Part 12, too. And they didn't have to suffer through any ads read by yours truly, or any that were programmatically injected into this long-running family program. I hope all of you who have been thinking about supporting my efforts will consider subscribing. You have the option to pay the discounted annual rate or go month by month. You'll get the same thing either way. My deepest appreciation for all of you who have done so already and who might consider this. Okay, that's all the cadging I'm going to subject you to for now. This here is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from L.A., California, and it's my great hope that you'll come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.